Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I think for existing MPs, it has been um, an awakening in terms of their role and responsibilities, which rightly, they have always seen first and foremost to the people who put them there. They've got a community to serve, an electorate to serve, but I think they do recognise more broadly now that um, they have a responsibility uh, to those around them. Hello, lovely people of Pods, and welcome to the last show of the year. I can't believe it. It's Catherine Murphy with you, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia, and I'm delighted uh, that the Finance Minister, Simon Birmingham, has made time to be with us on uh, the final show of the year, and we are talking, just for clarity, on Thursday. Uh, the government has just an, uh, unveiled, made public, the latest uh, Treasury uh, forecasts. So, uh, so it's a busy day. And uh, it's good of him to pop in. So let's start there, Simon. Um, It's pretty obvious, you know, we can see the government is sort of setting up an election contest, pivoting around economy and economic management, which are issues where the coalition has been traditionally stronger than your opponents. But what the MAIFO sort of brings home is how uncertain the environment is. Obviously... It paints a rosy picture. Uh, you know, we're sort of crouched at the, like, if you if it was a race, you start, you're crouched at the start, you're, you're waiting for the gun, you're ready to go. But the fact of the matter is there's so much outside the government's control in terms of how this economy, this recovery pans out. Would you agree with that? Well, Catherine, I think to, to pick up on some of your metaphors... Yes, possibly is, too many metaphors, a, but anyway. It's, a, and I may well now mix them all up too. So it's... A race that is a marathon, uh, and as John Howard used to say about the task of economic reform and economic management, it has an ever-receding uh, and moving finishing line that uh, that it ever always keeps moving away from you in that sense. And in this case, um, you know, we are further ahead uh, in that marathon than we thought we'd be, than we thought we'd be when we handed down the budget this year or when we handed down the budget last year, that the improvements are actually really quite profound in the sense that uh, we've got far stronger growth, far more Australians in jobs uh, and lower debt projections than we had anticipated earlier this year, uh, which were lower than what we had anticipated last year. And so that's all um, a very good story in terms of the strength of the Australian economy uh, and points to our resilience and that we're doing well, particularly well relative to the rest of the world. But it is a very uncertain global environment. 
Uh, now, there's lots of reasons for Australians to be brimming with confidence, and we can see that in consumer confidence indexes, business confidence, retail spending, uh, and all of that's flowing through into uh, record jobs numbers, which is fantastic. However, there's no room for complacency either, given all of the uncertainties we face from COVID, uh, from other uh, international challenges and disruptions that can occur, uh, and of course, from a regional environment that we face. Mm. And uh, look, obviously, there's a way to, in political terms, to swim across your uncertainty, Rip. God, there's more metaphors. It's all right. We'll calm down eventually. Um, look, what you'll do is say, uh, here we, we, here's, the, here's the progress from the May budget. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're ahead of where we thought we would be, but uncertainty abounds and in times of uncertainty, stick with the incumbents. Like you can see an election strategy writing itself, but at the heart of that is, tr is trust though, because of all of the uncertainty. You're going to have to say to Australian voters, we, we will manage this recovery better than our opponents and you can trust us to do that. But, you know, you're a government about to seek a fourth term in office, uh, you know, trust, community trust is not where it was 12 months ago if we believe the published opinion polls. We've sort of come off the height of trust. So how do you how do you manage all those cross-currents? It's pretty difficult, isn't it? Election campaigns are always hard-fought and difficult and uh, and come down more often than not in uh, in modern Australian politics to the wire as well. So every vote will matter, every part of the campaign will matter and will fight uh, very hard to, to win people's trust to look after the core equities of Australians going forward. Uh, that is, you know, their personal safety, their personal security, their jobs, the opportunities for their families. And we'll do that uh, having come through COVID with uh, one of the lowest fatality rates in the developed world in managing COVID, now having one of the highest vaccination rates uh, of the developed world uh, and with one of the strongest economic outcomes. Uh, and so that is a strong story in terms of the fact that Australians um, uh, have seen some 40,000 lives saved compared with what uh, international averages would have seen occur in Australia. Uh, we've seen uh, many hundreds of thousands of jobs saved and uh, and we're, with today's unemployment figures, we've seen another 360,000 jobs rebound. But amazingly, We've now got 180,000 more jobs in the Australian economy than we had pre-COVID. We've had a recession. Uh, we've been hit by Delta and a subsequent downturn from that. And yet still we've got employment back above those pre-COVID levels, uh, which from all previous recessions would have taken six, seven, eight years uh, to get that type of turnaround. But the, but the problem you've got, though, uh, and I'm, I'm certain your opponents would tell you a compelling story about that, uh, voters don't tend to necessarily bank what you've saved them from. <laughs> Labor discovered this in the global financial crisis. They thought they would be able to campaign on, on a record of having kept Australia out of recession. As it turns out, voters shrugged their shoulders and said, so what? And here you are in not exactly analogous circumstances, but in similar circumstances. You obviously rescued the vaccine rollout from the bin fire it was heading towards. We've now got some of the highest vaccination rates in the world, as you've said. Uh, the economy's looking good, but voters don't necessarily mark you up for an alternative that they haven't lived through and they can't see. So, again, how much of a problem is that heading into an election year? 
Well, it's where the election will come down to being a choice. Uh, And, of course, we will fight to frame the choice. There's no doubt the opposition will fight to frame the choice. But from our perspective, we'll be framing it uh, against the values of a government that uh, has not only delivered those outcomes I spoke about before, but has done so consistent with our principles of keeping taxes as low as possible, of delivering income tax cuts, small business tax cuts, investment incentives that have seen a huge wave in uh, in private sector non-mining investment across the Australian economy. Uh, and to put that in terms people care about, it's it's plant, it's machinery, it's equipment uh, that, yes, is stimulating our economy right now because small and medium businesses across the country are buying all of that gear. But what it will do is make them more competitive and more productive into the years to come, which helps to uh, further stimulate economic growth and job security there. Of course, we've got further tax cuts uh, to come as part of the plans that we've outlined for our economic recovery. And we'll pitch that against uh, a Labor Party who are uh, already racking up what look like quite large spending promises uh, some months away from the election. Um, uh, And, of course, they're not saying how they'll pay for those spending promises when they talk about close to free childcare or close to free TAFE. Um, Australians, I think, hear that and wonder, well, where does the money come from? And it either comes from higher debts, and we know there's already enough challenge in meeting the ongoing costs of the NDIS, of responding to COVID, of aged care reform, of national security, and that you can't start writing blank cheques elsewhere and without either jeopardising our AAA credit rating or ultimately looking at higher taxes. But again, it's sort of, it's harder to paint that contrast. You said a couple of times in the press conference today, and I was said in the press conference without, you know, without waiting for my turn, which was kind of ridiculous. You, you referred to the fiscal strategy a couple of times, right? What is the fiscal strategy? I mean, you guys are basically saying we we are not going to enter normal budgetary conditions, i.e. where all expenditures are offset, until such time as the recovery is absolutely baked in, right? I understand exactly what you're saying about blank checks, but I don't know how you whether the point of contrast is as sharp as you think it is in an environment where your own fiscal discipline, for all the right reasons, I should say, is not where uh, fiscal discipline would generally be in a coalition government. You still think you can win that penalty shootout when basically you're on the same field? It's, I don't know. I've heard Australians kind of say that if they need to see excess spending in achieving an emergency outcome, emergency spending sort of provisions, they'd rather the people who perhaps didn't want to spend that money were the ones doing it than the people who were eager to spend it, that they know there's at least some checks and balances in there. And I think that is where, yes, the 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 guardrails against which you would usually set the old fiscal policy debates in Australia of are you going to achieve a surplus or not? have shifted and changed um, because you know, we are now in a situation where in responding to COVID, the country has carried the biggest deficits in our peacetime history. Um, so and these are very, very significant um, and you don't come back from them in just a year or two. You can't say there'll be a budget balance and surplus in a couple of years' time uh, without having all sorts of other negative consequences that would undermine the economic recovery. So what we outlined in the budget last year uh, and again this year uh, was a fiscal strategy that said we would transition uh, when we saw confidence and stability in the economic recovery uh, to a focus on fiscal repair that firstly looks at ensuring 
economic growth is faster than the growth in our debt. Um, and pleasingly, we are somewhat well advanced in relation to that fiscal strategy uh, that, uh, that uh, in last year's budget, the 2020 budget, we expected net debt to peak at 43.8% of GDP. That's now projected to be 37.4%. So uh, that level of debt as a share of our economy is now forecast to be significantly lower this year and each of the forward years, uh, and that is really the, the strategy that we're pursuing. But that's a, that's, that's a consequence of a growth dividend rather than uh, you running around rampantly with a razor gang. I'm not suggesting you should in the current environment, by the way. I mean, there's, there is a reason why we've had an expansionary fiscal policy. It's not just because everyone woke up one day and... Mm. You know, thought, it, it was to save jobs and to, yeah. and to strengthen hospitals exactly. and all of those things. I'm not intending to beat you over it, but but I'm just making a point that a clear point of contrast in in previous elections, I just don't think is the clear point of contrast that you evidently still think it is. Anyway, one of us is going to be right. I'm just I want to ask you one more question. I'm just I'm uh, I'm barreling Simon through slightly here because we're on the clock. He needs to have another conversation before he leaves Canberra. So just in the economic space. Uh, before I change the subject to the Jenkins Review, uh, I just want to bring you back to trust again and the fact that you occupy the finance portfolio. So you are the Dr No of the government, basically. Uh, we've seen uh, a growing controversy about grants. If you, look at the, if you look at the expenditures that have been racked up between the budget and now that were documented in the MyEFO today, for example, you see a lot of infrastructure projects in regional New South Wales marginal seats. Um, you've got, you know, the, the sort of discretionary grants programs have been plagued by controversy for the entire life of this government. What responsibility do you have as finance minister? Back to that trust point, which I'm not raising gratuitously. I think it's actually really important. What responsibility do you bear to bring more discipline into spending decisions, to have spending decisions that are more obviously in the national interest rather than in immediate electoral interests? Well, Catherine, I think on the big picture of that, um, there is a huge need to ensure uh, in the years ahead that there is a real sense of discipline around um, spending, uh, that if we are to meet all of those priorities I outlined before in the NDIS and aged care and national security, uh, that we've got to have a sense of prioritisation uh, and there's not room, particularly for other big structural spending programs, but we also have to take care of the pennies uh, on the way through, through too and, uh, and be careful about that. That said, Australians do also expect governments to uh, step up and support local and community uh, activities in, uh, in different ways. Um, some of the types of commentary you talk about, I mean, it's not necessarily new uh, and we can go back and Anthony Albanese himself was subject to Auditor-General reports about yeah. grants allocation. Ros um, Kelly these... famously resigned over her own sports rorts affair, but the point and, is she did actually resign. Uh, now people stand up and say uh, people get more in their electorates because they're a good local member. I mean, this is, again, I'm sort of harking on a theme, but it's... Yeah, you, and, and, and there is... There is a, a tension point there where Australians do want their local MP to strongly advocate yeah, for yeah. things in their local community. Of course. 
and to try to secure outcomes in uh, in that regard. Now, um, in today's budget update, there's $15 million for the Port Adelaide Footy Club in terms of, uh, of additional uh, sports uh, infrastructure there. Uh, I'm a Crows fan, not a Power fan, yeah. um, uh, but I was... You know, Lobbied uh, by Labor MPs as well as uh, as well as Liberal MPs in favour of that. It's in a seat the Liberal Party has never held yeah. in Labor Heartland. Yeah. Um, uh, now, uh, it is one of many such things. It's ultimately a recognition that there's a piece of significant community and social infrastructure in terms of supporting uh, women's sport, in terms of supporting community organisations and so on that can be upgraded and provide a widespread community benefit. Now, uh, if people want governments to check out of those decisions or to leave them entirely to some sort of bureaucratic process, well, I think there's a point there where it potentially weakens the representative role of our democracy too. So there's a there's a balancing act to have. But would you say that the balancing act has been right in right. recent times? I think there's, and certainly from my portfolio, where we don't administer um, hardly any grants no, programs, no, but we, uh, we have uh, some roles in terms of the setting of the grant guidelines and particularly ensuring that departments respond to the Auditor-General's reports. Yeah. We do need to be diligent in responding to those. I said before, for any government going forward, there also will need to be that sense of restraint, first and foremost, about not creating new, ongoing, long-term structural spends. Yeah but making sure we look after everything else too. Yeah, okay. Um, let's talk about the Jenkins review, which I know you've worked very hard on. Uh, uh, to, and if you're not across this, I imagine most listeners are, but uh, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner handed down her long-anticipated report into parliamentary culture and sadly it was about as bad as you would have thought it was. Uh, anyway, big clean-up job to do. Where is all that up to? So since receiving Kate's report and, uh, and Kate Jenkins did, a great job, and we established the report with a high level of cross-party support in terms of the terms of reference, in terms of having Kate Jenkins as the reviewer. Uh, I've met with the opposition, or I shouldn't say I, Maurice Payne, uh, the Minister for Women, Ben Morton, the Special Minister of State, and I have uh, have together in different ways met with the opposition, the Greens, the crossbenchers, coalition staff, uh, to uh, to make sure that we receive their feedback as we step out an action plan. Our action plan is to take action across all of Kate's different recommendations. So you'll do the lot? Uh, our intention is absolutely to make sure that we're pursuing them all. Um, some of them are recommendations for the parliament, so we have to put in place the processes for the parliament to develop a code of conduct and those sorts of things. But Kate has stepped out what she recommends by way of a, a joint select committee to develop and establish that code of conduct in, a again, a multi-party way. So uh, we will pursue those processes to, uh, to deliver on that. Uh, my expectation is that we will, by the time we bring the parliament back next year, be in a position where the leadership task force she's recommended is up and running, the type of statement she's recommended be made by, by the parliament mm -hmm. uh, is able to be delivered upon. Do you think upon. you'll do that before the election? Uh, absolutely. That is definitely the government's intention. Now, we need and want to take everybody else across the parliament with us on that journey. So there's further talk to be had about the content, nature and structure of that statement. But uh, everyone has said to me they want us to get on with it. So get on with it. We intend to do. That was always our ambition and, uh, and we want to be able to bring that back as early as we possibly can. Uh, some of the legislative changes that have been recommended, we want to be able to act on early, um, putting in place the processes to establish some new mechanisms that build on the things we've already done this year, new complaints processes we put in place, new training we put in place. Uh, Kate has recommended some 
evolution of those. Um, so we're going to start the work around how we do that. She didn't think they could be done in the space of a short period of time. And if anything, she said the priority was to make sure we got what we're doing now there right uh, and then evolved them into different structures through the course of next year. Uh, but in the background, we'll start teasing out what the legislative changes for those different structures look like, while crucially knowing we have an election next year, also make sure that things like the training that we've expected to be done become an embedded part uh, of the induction process for new MPs and new officers that, uh, that will be established uh, following that so that we don't waste any time in terms of the life and culture of the next mm. parliament. Mm, that's an important point. What about the structures? There's, uh, there's the two bodies that, uh, in essence, create a more normalised human resources function for parliamentary staff. So you can get the, the statement of... A, let's just call it statement of atonement. Well, I can't remember what her words were, but Kate's words were, but the statement done, um, you know, the, the task force up and running, what legislatively do you think you will be able to do? Because there's not, I mean, there's precious little sitting days scheduled. This, this is where Kate was, was quite um, thoughtful, I think, in terms of her report too, that she, she did spell out some different timelines for different recommendations uh, and so there are some specific changes to uh, the Parliamentary Staff Act that she identified uh, and our ambition will be to bring that specific legislation forward before before an election, uh, assuming Parliament comes back before an election yes. uh, yeah. and, uh, and that we get that done um, as quickly as possible. In terms of those new structures, the Office of Parliamentary Staff and Culture, for example, which she sees as picking up um, a number of the different functions from the Department of Finance, um, potentially absorbing some of the uh, those new training elements, those sorts of things, uh, as well as where uh, the independent complaints process that, mm. uh, that we've set up this year needs to sit in the future. Uh, there's an expectation there that that is more in a six to 12-month horizon. Uh, we're not going to waste any time, though. Our intention is to um, meet with the opposition, the Greens, the independents, agree on the shape of that new organisation, um, you know, where it sits within the parliamentary departments and architecture, uh, how it needs to be legislated so that we can get those drafting uh, instructions underway for the legislation um, and have that ready uh, for introduction as early, I would expect, into the new parliament as uh, as humanly possible. possible. And uh, just one more, I, I gather uh, the Labor Party is going to survey their staff uh, about the recommendations, or at least that's the current planning. Uh, poor Don Farrell has, uh, has, uh, has, has got COVID. Has got COVID. A, a wedding-related um, COVID yeah, seems I, to be a commonplace. I, I, I believe so. Um, anyway, um, if you're listening, Don, get well soon. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, obviously uh, he's not the only actor that, who you're dealing with. Uh, but, um, yeah, they, they're planning on some sort of all-staff survey just to make sure that the that the staff are broadly happy with the Jenkins recommendations, are, are you doing that, or are you doing it sort of more informally in terms of gauging sentiment? Both, you know, they're pretty important stakeholders yeah. now. Obviously, people who have made complaints in the past, who you know, who who have been campaigning for these changes, but also current 
parliamentary staff as well. So, so the, the Prime Minister convened a meeting of parliamentary staff soon after we received and, uh, and published the Jenkins Review, uh, which Maurice Payne and I both spoke at and emphasised you know, the real importance of staff engagement there. Uh, we have some mechanisms that we can use to engage with you know, representative groups of, uh, of staff as well and, uh, and are pursuing that. We're not planning a, a sort of formal survey yeah. at uh, this point in a sense because the, the message almost universally has been don't waste time, just get on with acting on these recommendations and implementing them. So uh, it'll probably more be a case that as we go through that implementation, there'll be plenty of need to check back in with the different staff representative groups to say, does this way of implementing it appear consistent with the way you want to see it happen, consistent with how you interpret the Jenkins review? Um, ultimately, uh, you know, Kate's provided recommendations, but there's interpretation within those recommendations mm. and we want to make sure the goodwill is maintained with staff and across parties because it is ultimately a, a parliamentary exercise that uh, that is at the heart of it, not for one party or the party of government. We are the party of government today and we have to show leadership um, in delivering upon the recommendations, uh, but it's got to be something that transcends just our party and uh, and delivers effectively mm. for oh, everyone. Yeah, of course. Um, last question, because we, we are totally on the clock. Last time you and I caught up on the podcast, I did ask you what you'd learned as an employer or you were starting to think of yourself as an employer as a consequence of this journey that we have all been on in our various spheres about culture in the building. What do you detect with your colleagues? And are people, I know there's a span of views because obviously I talk to them as well, right? But um, I, I actually think it's been uh, that people are thinking about themselves as as employers of staff in a different way than I've seen in the past. I don't know, maybe this is rash optimism. What do you think? I sort of, when Kate Jenkins and I first sat down to start talking about what the parliamentary staff environment was in its structure and so on, I, I likened it with Kate to say, well, we have a Members of Parliament Staff Act that through the Department of Finance employs ultimately thousands of individuals but then we have 227 different franchise operations yeah, like with of each member of parliament and each senator who is there as a franchisee, um, not chosen by the Department of Finance or the minister, but chosen by the people uh, to set up an office and to suddenly be entitled to have staff and, uh, and other functions that go with that office. And that is challenging because at the next election, a bunch of new people will be elected of different political persuasions, many of whom have never been employers before and don't have uh, any of, uh, of the staff or human resource management skills or practices to, uh, to take on. And that's um, where I think you know, the embedding of um, all of the training elements in the induction processes will be so important. I think for existing MPs, it has been um, an awakening in terms of uh, you know, their role and responsibilities, which rightly they have always seen first and foremost to the people who put them there. They've got a community to serve, an electorate to serve. Um, that's what their job is and their staff are there to help them do that and then to, to bring those issues and views to Canberra. Uh, but I think they do recognise more broadly now that um, you know, they have a responsibility uh, to those around them and as... Most members have and senators have now done the uh, the safe and respectful workplace training program. Many have said to me they found it surprisingly good or surprisingly useful. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, again, in terms of that 
concept of of awakening about how you manage issues in the office, how you establish the appropriate culture, how you ensure people understand where and how they go and get help uh, or address difficult issues. Um, it perhaps shows that um, that in the early burly of uh, of uh, doing um, representing your community or representing your state. Um, not everyone had had the chance to think about these issues before and when actually forced to sit down and just go through um, you know, how to be that that better employer, uh, it was, say, a bit of an awakening. Well, and it's a nice note to end on, entirely unplanned, but a nice, a nice optimistic uh, note to end on at the end of a year, which I, I just really don't have words for this year. In, in all honesty. So um, thank you, Simon. Thanks for making the time to drop by. Thank you to Melanie Tate, who's the EP of the show, while Miles Martignoni is off on parental leave. Thank you to Karishma Luthria, who cuts the show for us. Thank you to you guys for listening. You've been a marvel uh, through this gruelling political year. Obviously, we'll be back in the new year and election year. God help us all. See ya. <laughs> thank you, Catherine, and thank you. All the best to all of your listeners and everyone. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.